Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, if you would. It's Palm Sunday. Next Sunday is Easter, where we'll celebrate the resurrection of Jesus in particular ways. As I mentioned, we'll meet on Thursday, take communion together. and As we prepare for this very special week in the life of our Lord, uh, we're going to look at Mark 11. And the scene of Palm Sunday is, very, is a very familiar one if you have been a Christian for, for a while. It's recorded in all four Gospels. And it's the presentation of Jesus as the Messianic King, the, the, the Davidic King that would come and sit upon an everlasting throne, which is actually a fulfillment of the promise that God made to, to David in 2 Samuel seven sixteen, when God said this to David through the prophet Nathan, Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And one of my favorite stories from church history is actually about a king. It, it's about a king and a preacher during the Scottish Reformation. I've shared this, with, this illustration with you before. Um, I don't know how many times I share it every opportunity I get. It's, it's literally one of my favorites. And uh, it, it's, a, it's the story about a preacher named Robert Bruce, not to be confused with Robert the Bruce, who was the king of Scotland, you might remember from the movie Braveheart. Um, but Robert Bruce the preacher lived 1554 to 1631. Robert the Bruce the king was 1200s, 1274. Robert... The preacher had, uh, as one of the great ministers of Scotland during the Reformation, and he had fallen out of favor with King James VI, who, in the beginning, the, this, this Scottish king took a liking to, to uh, Bruce and even praised him publicly. But when Robert Bruce would not allow the pulpit to be brought under the authority of the crown, and probably even more so when he disciplined one of the nobles, uh, things changed dramatically. The king was infuriated with, with Bruce, and um, the king felt that there was no higher authority than, than the crown. And so from then on, James VI set out to control the, the church. Ian Murray tells the story that as time moved on, that the king began to publicly show his contempt during church services. When Bruce would preach a serious or convicting topic, the king would carry on distracting conversations with his entourage in his own uh, seating area, which, of course, the king had his own seating area, and so he would just begin to, to talk. And then if the king's talking, you're talking too, because you, you probably feared what would happen to you if you didn't answer back. And whenever this would happen, Bruce would stop preaching and wait until the king was quiet, and then he would start preaching again, for the king to simply begin talking uh, again. And on one occasion when Bruce was preaching, the, the king was playing this game, and the third time, this went back and forth. He'd preach, and the king would talk, he'd stop, the king would start again, and uh, this went on three different revolutions. And, and as the king began to talk loudly, Bruce addressed the talkers from the, from the pulpit. And this is what he said. It's been said to have been an expression of the wisest kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. 
The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. Now, there is no comparison between the kings of the earth and the king of heaven, is there? We give honor to, to kings, as the Bible tells us to do. But there's no comparison between kings or presidents or emperors today and the, and the king of heaven. Well, in our passage, the king of heaven... The Lord Jesus Christ is actually presented to the people of Israel, and He is not even afforded what an earthly king would, would require. There is a, there's a loud but a meager ceremony, a, a fading display of adoration. Kings don't enter their kingdom with a celebration along the road with tree branches and subjects' cloaks as their, their decorations. Kings are not met with crickets when they ride forth into the crowning room like Jesus did whenever he entered the temple mount. And kings are surely not condemned and then crucified by their, by their subjects, but, but Jesus was. And in the passage before us today, I think it's one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. It's in Mark 11, verse 11. Look, if you would, at verse 11, the very last verse that Nathan read to us this morning. It says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the, with the twelve, since it was already late. If you understand what's happening in this passage, that description of since it was already late, it's, it, it's not because it got too late for Jesus to set up the kingdom. It's, it's a judgment. Mark says after the crowds hailed Jesus as the Messiah, he scales the temple bank of the, of the Kidron Valley. He, he strode up through the eastern gate onto the temple mount, and after looking around, he left for Bethany. And the king comes to Zion, and the, to the leaders of Israel, and to the people of Israel, and they do not receive him. In fact, John 11 says the leaders had already convened a council after he has raised Lazarus, and they, they planned to kill Jesus. And they had, uh, they had uh, gathered together to plot. Had they received him as king in, in this moment, there would have been a, truly a great coronation. I mean, if this would have been the, the, the coronation of the, the king of David, trumpets would have sounded, sacrifices would have been made, oil would have been brought forth to, to anoint his head and his beard, a throne would have been prepared, people would have bowed before him, and the usurping Gentiles would have been annihilated. And the Bible tells us that will happen one day. Revelation tells us that, that on the day that Christ comes, he'll destroy all of his enemies, and he'll, he'll come into the city of, of Jerusalem, and He'll come to the Mount of Olives, and it will split in two, according to Zechariah 14. And Satan, the great usurper, will be cast out of the world, and Jesus will rule on the Davidic throne for a thousand years. And on that day, Israel will look upon him whom they pierced, Zechariah 12.10, and they will believe. And that exactly, that's exactly why Mark, what Mark presents here, is the presentation of the king, not the coronation of the of the king. That's because this king has not come to rule universally yet in, in, in Mark 11. He, he's come to die for his subjects. Jesus must die as the Passover lamb and shed his blood as a ransom. So, so his people, past, present, and future, Jew and Gentile, can enter his kingdom. And the earthly kingdom is coming in the future when he comes again. 
But right now, we're between the comings, between the first and the second coming of Christ. And, and during this time, the king is gathering his subjects, and, and he rules, but he rules in his subjects' hearts and until the physical and universal kingdom comes. And the first phase of this coming is what Jesus has been declaring since Caesarea Philippi. I mean, if you know the Gospels, you know Caesarea Philippi is this turning point, this, this hinge where Jesus <clears throat> puts to his disciples the question, who, who am I? And they answer, you are the Christ, the Son of God. That's the, the Son of the living God. It's the first time that Peter and the rest of the disciples make that confession. But then he declares what the Messiah will do. He unfolds for them the, the messianic pl plan in, in Mark 8, 31. It says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And if you know your Bibles, the disciples don't fully grasp that. In fact, Peter rebukes the Lord. They accept who he is as a person, but they have a problem with the plan. Because the plan wasn't going to unfold the way that they anticipated. And that's also re uh, evidenced by the repeated ambition. I mean, if they understood what Jesus was saying here, then they wouldn't have been jockeying for who was going to set her the, at the right or the left hand in the kingdom. I mean, they're, they're expecting a literal kingdom. The crowd of the followers, uh, of Jesus' followers, don't get it either. I mean, they think that Jesus is bringing the kingdom now in this scene that we see, the palm branches. And, and when he doesn't inaugurate the, the kingdom, they, they, they go home disappointed. The rulers of Israel surely didn't believe that, that this is what was happening. They declared Jesus a blasphemer and said his power comes from Satan, and they, they, they try to kill him. But Jesus knows. And that's exactly why he sets this week in motion the way, the way that he does. I think a really good way of looking at Mark 11, it's like you're standing upon the precipice here of, of, of some massive events that are going to unfold in, uh, in concession, and it, it's, going to be, it's going to be quick. And you might think of what's happening here as Jesus pressing the button. The red button is about to be pressed with, with this scene to, today. And in our passage, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and he launches the murderous plot of the scribes and Pharisees with this very public display we call the triumphal entry. Jesus is always in complete control of everything, including this event. Let's look at how Mark presents this pivotal moment in three proofs that are given here that Jesus is the Messianic King. We, we, we'll call it three proofs in the presentation of the Messianic King. You can see that in the proof that's given from his omniscience. He knows things that only God knows. You can see that in his worship. He not only allows worship, he, he entices worship through what he does. And that's blasphemy unless Jesus is God. And then also in a pronouncement of judgment, which I'll point out to you at the very end of this, of this scene. His omniscience, his worship, and, and the pronouncement of judgment. And, and the first proof, you'll get these one at, a, one at a time, is the king is presented in his omniscience. Look, if you would, at verse 1 of Mark 11. It says, as they, it's plural, there's a group of them, as they approached Jerusalem at Bethany and Bethpage, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. And so, 
Jesus and the disciples are arriving in Jerusalem for Passover holiday. This would not have been a one-day journey. It would have taken about a week to get there. It, they, they would have spent about a week there and about a week to get home. This is about a three-week deal whenever you go to Jerusalem for the high holidays, especially from, from Galilee. And Mark says everybody's going there. There's a lot of people going there. Jesus is not the only one celebrating the Passover. And Mark says, as they approached, the Lord sends two of his disciples out ahead of him to, to get a colt, we find out in verse 2, which is a young donkey. The two are probably Peter and John, even though the text doesn't tell us that, so you can't say that for sure. But we do know that Peter and John gets a, another assignment later in the week to prepare for the, the Passover. They're, they're a trusted couple, so Jesus sends them out on, on journeys often and he does that here. And they arrive at the backside of the, of the Mount of Olives in a small village called Bethpage in, in Bethany. And the Mount of Olives is, is a ridge line that runs uh, um, north to south of the Temple Mount. If, if my Bible is the, is the Temple Mount itself, the, the Temple would set on top of this. This is over 20 football fields in, in size. It's massive and this is the eastern side of the, of, the, of the Temple Mount. Think of a mount like a platform. This is the western side, what you see on TV or otherwise the western wall or sometimes called the Wailing Wall where the Jews gather on this side. They're gathered on this side of the, of the temple. They do that because the temple was offset back toward the, the western side. It's the closest that they could get today to where the temple used to be. But on the eastern side... Over here, there's the Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is higher than the Temple Mount itself. Not too much, but down in the Kidron Valley and up into the, into the, into the Temple. So the Kidron Valley uh, and, and the Mount of Olives run parallel with, with, with each other. And on the backside of this mountain, this little this rise of olive trees, is, is the two little towns called Bethany and and, and, and Bethpage. It's on the backside of this rising, elongated hill crest, and Bethany's a little further out. It's the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who, who has become a central figure in the closing days of the ministry of the Lord. So again, Jesus traveling from Galilee, he travels down the Jordan River Valley to Jericho, and then from Jericho he goes up to Jerusalem, and he's making this journey. And there's a lot of things that happen along the way. Having traveled from Zacchaeus' house toward Jerusalem, Zacchaeus in Jericho, Jesus arrives right before sunset, which would have been the beginning of the Sabbath, where, where he has a meal with Simon the leper in, in his house and his friends. And, and in relation to people, the Lord's fame it, it goes beyond the disciples, uh, not just his group of 12 or even 500. We know there are 500 that saw the risen Lord. I mean, everybody's talking about Jesus. They've been talking about him for a while, but in particular after the raising of Lazarus. And his name is spoken daily among the people in Jerusalem. The leaders of Jerusalem know who he is. The people of Jerusalem know who he is. And you can almost follow the story that Mark traces dot by dot by, by, and, and feel the narrative building once he arrives in Jericho. I mean, Lazarus uh, shows the sovereign power of the king. He can raise from the dead. Zacchaeus shows the necessary submission to, to the king. The giving sight to blind Bartimaeus sets up, uh, that sets up this scene. He inaugurates the saving work of the king. He'll open the eyes of, 
of the spiritually blind. And Mark 11, we're reading, is the presentation of the king. And then the cleansing of the temple that will happen the next day is the authority of the, of the king, where he'll denounce the religious leaders and then pronounce woes later this week on the scribes and the, and the Pharisees. And so here is Jesus with all of this behind him in the fanfare, and he stands on the hill, and he's, he's about to breach the hill. And he's about to push the button. And as he does, he gives a command to, to get the colt. His omniscience is displayed in this command. Look, if you would, at verse 2. It says, And he said to them, Go, there's the command, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately, you, you, as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever sat, untie it, and bring it here. So he tells his two disciples, Go. Go into the village and bring the colt back, back to me. And, and the entire scene begins with this command that Jesus gives Bethany is, not a, is a city that's not far from where they are, but it's out of the visual sight of the Lord. He commands his two disciples to get the colt there. And Matthew tells us that there was a mare with it, and, and to bring it back. And without being able to see it, this is a display of his omniscience. He tells them where to go. He tells them what they'll find whenever they get there. He tells them what to say when somebody asks what you're doing. And he also tells, tells them what will happen. They'll give you the colt. And only God can do that. I mean, this is the point, setting this up. He knew, he knew then, and he knows about you today. Have you ever thought about the fact that while you can't see God, God can see you? I mean, you see evidences of the Lord all around. I mean, the heavens declare the glory of, of God. I was... Told the 8 o'clock service I was sitting there yesterday, last night, with all of the wind and blowing, you know, around, tying things down before that, but praying and thinking about, about this morning, hearing the wind outside, being thankful for my home, and thank you, Lord, for shelter and roof over my head. But just thinking of the power that can pick a trampoline up. I tied my trampoline down. You pick your trampoline up, and it just throws it across the... There's power in that, the display of, of the Lord, and... We're driving this morning. The sun's out. It's beautiful again. Everything's turning green in the flowers. That's all display. There is a God, and He's a creator in His character. But, but you can't see God. The Bible says that God's a spirit. It's one of the significances of Jesus coming. You can see God then. He's God in the flesh. But you can't see God. But God can see you, can He? He can not just see you as an individual. He can see your heart. He knows the motives of your heart that that's there. He knows where you're at. He, even if you don't know yourself, he, he knows what your life holds before you even get there, he, even down to what you'll say and what, and what you'll speak. And his omniscience is also shown in what they're to say. It, it, it's shown in the command to get the cult, but also in, in what they say. Look at verse 3. He says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. He tells them what to say and exactly what will happen. They were to say that the Lord has need of it. And, and, and the owners willingly and eagerly obey. There's no complaint. There's no issue. There's no struggle. Why? Because the Lord has, has need of it. In, in Luke, there's actually a, a play on words here. Mark says when the bystanders asked what, what, uh, what, what are you doing, Luke says that the bystanders are actually the donkey's masters. It's a play on words, kurioi, the, 
which is the word that we get for Lord. So Luke says, When the donkey's lords said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They answered, Because the Lord, being your Lord, has need of it. And the owners didn't know the disciples, but they recognized Christ's authority. Who are you? Now, now imagine this. Last week, yesterday, you're in the middle of Kroger's parking lot, and you go in to get your groceries or pick up something for dinner, and when you come outside, you find someone opening the door of your vehicle, getting in it, trying to drive it away. And when you walk up to them and say, what are you doing? They say, the Lord has need of it. You would probably say, okay, you know, 911, or you'll... You're Mark Hager, you're going to pull out your Glock or whatever you're going to do. You don't recognize that person's authority. But here these people recognize not the disciples' authority, but God's authority. And when God speaks to us today from his word, it has the same kind of authority. I mean, think about this. You don't recognize my authority, I mean, because I have no authority in myself. I'm a man, but, but you do recognize God's authority. And the one who speaks to you through his word. I mean, think about the foolishness of preaching. I mean, there are people that have great knowledge. There are great orators who can hold you spellbound with the twisting of their, of, of their words. But even that fizzles and fades. You only listen as long as they're able to hold your, your attention. But in preaching, you can have a, an inarticulate man, a half-educated man, speak the Word of God and it gives life to you, it convicts you. Someone, I mean, you can read pages in, in church history where, where someone just quotes a verse to somebody and, and, it, and it puts them under conviction. There's power, there's authority in, in God's Word. And you're called to obey Him through that Word because He's Lord, He's your Creator. There's omniscience. Omniscience is also shown in the fulfillment of, of prophecy. Look, if you would, at verse 4. It says, They went away and found the colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave him permission. It happened exactly as Jesus said it would. And there's something way bigger going on here than simply knowing where the cult was and knowing ahead of time what the, the owners would, would do. Christ is actually fulfilling prophecy here with his instructions and with his words. And it was necessary that he ride the, the, the donkey because the Old Testament promises the king of the Jews would enter on one. Matthew, in his account of the triumphal entry, says, Now all these things took place that what was spoken of might be fulfilled. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. And that's a reference to Zechariah 9.9, spoken over 500 years earlier, as God makes a promise to his people. Look at Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt the foal of a donkey. I mean, in the, the, the entire life and ministry of Jesus, you, you see two things re repeated going on. The two overriding motivations. One is Jesus does the will of his Father, 
And the other is he fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. He fulfills prophecy. Does the will of the Father and fulfills promises. And both of those things are converging on this, this moment right here. In Mark, uh, verse, in Mark 11, verse 2, it says the cult has never been sat on. You ever think about how many unused things that Jesus actually used, unused for human purposes, because it was set apart for, for God himself? This cult has been unused for human purposes. It's going to be used by God. I mean, Jesus came in Mary's unused womb, set apart for the virginal conception of the Son of God. He was buried in an unused tomb, set apart for his burial. And he's presented as king on a donkey that's never been sat upon by another to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. And that doesn't just happen by chance, friend. I mean, that's divinely orchestrated because Jesus is holy. He's altogether unique. He's different from us. And we are common and, and sinful. And because of that, because of who Jesus is, he's to be, be worshipped. Here's the, the second proof that he is the Messianic king. It's, it's presented in his worship. If you would at verse 7. It says, They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. This is deliberate and important. And what's important is that Jesus initiates all of this. Don't, don't miss that. Jesus actually summons praise here with, with what's going on. Jesus is the one who calls for the donkey. Jesus is the one who gives the command and sends out the disciples. And Jesus here is the one who summons praise. He's the one who gets on the, the colt. He gets on the colt as the, as the king, and he knows exactly what this means. And, and he knows how the people will respond. I mean, he deliberately allows this display of enthusiasm from his disciples and the people by his actions, which is very different from all the other times before in, in the Lord's ministry. When you think about that, up until this moment, Jesus has never allowed what, what, what you see here. In fact, it's just the opposite. I mean, you think back over his three-year ministry when, when they tried to make Jesus king in Galilee, they've already tried to make him king. He, he slips through their midst and he goes up on the mountain to pray. He protects his disciples from getting wrapped up in, in that. Supernaturally passes through their midst. I mean, when he heals somebody, he says, tell no one. I mean, even in that passage about Peter, when Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, he says, don't repeat it until after I rise. The transfiguration. It's not even until Jericho, which is just a few days earlier, that he allows a blind man to, to publicly declare that he's the son of David. The people have said he's the son of man, but there he's the son of David, which means he's the king. And then he brings this man into the kingdom, and, and now he asks his disciples to get the messianic colt that Zechariah calls for, and he rides it from the Mount of Olives. Zechariah is screaming to everybody, and he rides it right into the temple. As prophesied amidst shouts of praise and, and, and fanfare. And this is why I say Jesus presses the button. Look at verse 8. It says, And many spread their coats in the road. It goes beyond the disciples. And others spread leafy branches which had been cut from the, from the fields. And that's probably what comes to our mind when we think of Palm Sunday. We think of the, the leafy branches, the palm branches, and, 
and then the coats, cloaks. But this is very significant. I mean, the spreading of coats was an ancient custom as a sign of submission. What they're saying is, we submit to you as, as king. It signified the submission of the people when, when a king would, would come in. Very similar to the, to the same symbol where, where, where you know, um, the, the, the foot of, uh, of Jesus is on, is on the neck of, of Satan. When a, when a king would conquer, he would conquer another king. That king that was conquered would come in and he would bow and he'd turn his head to the side and, and the, the conquering king would, would put his foot on his, on his neck. Same thing here. The coats are a sign of submission. It means we're under your feet. You're able to walk over us. You're over us. And that's what the people are doing. They're honoring him with the submission. And the cold is brought back and the disciples place their large cloaks on the animal. Jesus ascends it and then the crowd runs ahead and they're continually spreading their cloaks on the road as he, as he went along. And, and he begins this descent from the Mount of Olives, which again is a little higher than the, than, than the temple. And he descends toward the, toward the eastern gate. And as he descends, the crowd gets fever pitch. Now, the disciples and all those who were with him are overcome with excitement. Anticipation is building about what's about to happen. They're thinking of all of the miracles and the blind seeing and the lepers cleansed and Lazarus raised from the dead. And many of those people are with the Lord right now in this, in this crowd. And joy breaks out in Praise to God with a loud voice. And in essence, they're saying, the king is coming. Make way for the king. It's happening. Finally, the kingdom is being given to Israel. The, here's the king. If you put all the gospels together, the full picture of what they're saying. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming one. The kingdom of our father David is here. Hosanna in the highest. Peace in heaven and Glory in the highest, even the king of Israel. I mean, they knew exactly who he was. He's the Davidic king. This is a recitation of Psalm 118, which is the Hallel sung during, during Passover. I mean, this is no quiet gathering. This is no small gathering. I mean, you have, you have, you have over a million people that will be gathering for the Passover. The city can't hold it, and so... Where are they living and staying? They're staying in Bedouin tents all around, tent cities everywhere. And, and the Mount of Olives is one of the places that they stayed. Remember Jesus and his disciples, they leave the temple, they go to the Mount of Olives at night. This is full of people. You can see the, the ridge of olive trees from the Temple Mount itself. And the road that comes down from the mount to the temple, from many angles. In fact, the idea of, 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 this, of this praise, it's when, when they start coming down the, the, the sloping road toward the temple, the pilgrims in the temple gather with them as they make their way down, and people pour out of the temple and out of the eastern gate with their palm fronds and turn around and begin to walk with them singing, leading them into the city. Well, the question that should come to your mind is, is why? I mean, why does a Jesus allow such fanfare whenever he didn't before? Why such a different expression? I mean, he shunned being elevated like this, and, and the answer was before it wasn't his time. And again, more importantly, he's initiating this. I mean, Jesus knows that he must die exactly as God required. 
the Passover lamb, the right year, according to Daniel 9, the right place in Jerusalem, the right way, crucifixion for the right people. And so he intentionally infuriates the religious leaders with this display. I mean, how in control is Jesus of everything that's happening? As the crowd is loudly shouting the Hallel, attributing it to Jesus, saying he's coming, the king is coming, the priests in the temple were saying, make way, let him come, let him come. But they have no idea who they're attributing it to. Um... In the temple, whenever the priests would do their, their normal ritual, there's actually a record of the psalms that they would, they would recite each, each and every day of the week. A different song, different psalm, song of the day. And ancient rabbis have written this down. And on Sunday, Psalm 24, on Monday, Psalm 48, Tuesday, Psalm 82, Wednesday, Psalm 94, Thursday, Psalm 81, Friday, Psalm 93, and then on the Sabbath, Psalm 92. And this is Sunday. It's the first day of the week. So we know exactly what they were reciting. In the temple, doing their own thing, maybe hearing of the ruckus, maybe not, the priests. And so here is what the priests were reciting while Jesus is coming down the hill with this, with this fanfare. It's, it's a Psalm of David. It's the 24th Psalm. I want to read it to you. You can turn there if you want, but if not, just listen. Here's what the priests in the temple were saying. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul into falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, God. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your head, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Do you get this picture? I mean, the people with Jesus are coming down the hill shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the priest in the temple at the same time are reciting, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And Matthew 21.10 says, because of such of the commotion that's, that's going on, the city is asking, who is this? That's the question they're asking. Who is this man? And chanting, the priests are answering, who is this King of Glory? It's the Lord of hosts. He's the King of Glory. I mean, no wonder Jesus said, if, if men won't praise me, then the rocks will cry out. Even unsaved priests are in the, in the temple announcing His coming. And they're also announcing, as you'll see in a minute, their judgment. My point is that Jesus knew exactly what was going on and what He was doing. And He's not allowed that up to this point. I mean, at the feeding of the 5,000, when they tried to make him king, he withdrew the mountain alone. And now he forces the Sanhedrin to alter their timetable. I mean, John 11, 47, they're already plotting to kill him. They want to do it after, the, after this week. 
Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, saying, what are, we, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. I mean, they've already gathered and already plotted, and they're waiting to after the Passover, so there's not a riot. But it's the Father's plan that, that he die as the Passover sacrifice, and so he, he forces their hand. We don't ever think that Jesus is some type of helpless victim in the crucifixion. He planned every detail. He's in complete control of everything that's, that's happening. You remember what Jesus said at, to his disciples at, at his arrest? You remember when he comes and Peter pulls out the sword and whacks the, guy, the guy's ear off? You remember what Jesus says? He's like, do you not think that I could call a legion of angels to fight for me? I mean, I don't, I don't have to call them. I can think. And, and everything is obliterated. But for what? To save me from this hour? It's for this hour that I've come. That's what he's saying. And, and the Lord's plan works. The Pharisees are enraged. It's not in, in, in Mark, but if you look at Luke's passage on, on the triumphal entry... Luke 18.39 says they, they called him teacher, rabbi, not, not theirs, but, but others, his disciples' teacher. Rebuke your disciples, that's what they say. They know exactly what the disciples are saying. They know exactly what's, what's happening here. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they become silent, then the, the stones will cry out. It's a reference to Habakkuk 2.10. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and Sin against your soul, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer. There are actually two ways of seeing how this is coming together here in this, this scene with Jesus. One is this is an absolute claim of deity. Stones will, will cry out. It's a call for worship. Saying if men won't give proper praise to God, then, then inanimate objects will. And if Jesus was not the promised king, it would have been sin for him to receive this, this kind of of praise, but Jesus takes it a step further and he says, I won't, even, I won't stop them because I should be worshipped. That would be blasphemy if he wasn't the Son of God. But this phrase also indicates something else, which is this, it's a prelude to judgment. Here's the third proof. The king is presented in the pronouncement of judgment on the, on the leaders in the nation of Israel. Look at verse 11. It says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Jesus enters Jerusalem through the gate called Beautiful. We call it the Eastern Gate. And he rides up into the Temple Mount to the court of Gentiles. Again, like five football fields, the court of the Gentiles. And you come in the gate, and, and you go up, and it, you just pop up right on top of the Temple Mount. It's a stunning scene to see the temple. And after surveying the temple, it says, after he looks around, he surveys everything, he leaves. And you say, I don't really see any particular judgment mentioned there, but, but it's there. It's in what he doesn't do. I mean, the king enters the temple, the Davidic king, and he doesn't set up the Messianic kingdom. And he doesn't bring about all of the promises that God made to, the, to Israel in the Old Testament. I and mean, you've read your Old Testament. 
the blessings that are going to come when the kingdom is here, the desert's going to bloom like a rose, springs are going to be there, and nothing. That's a judgment. Israel's been looking for the kingdom and all of those blessings for almost a millennia. The disciples even asked Jesus after he, 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 he rises from the dead, right before he ascends, is now when you're going to restore the, the kingdom? Is now when the literal earthly kingdom's coming? They're expecting a kingdom. And here the king comes and no kingdom is established. But, but it's worse. The very day of Jesus' coming was even prophesied long before in Daniel 9.25. And they should have known this was the very day. I don't mean the general time. I mean the very day. Daniel 9.25 says seven sevens and 62 sevens, which simply means 483 years from this decree to rebuild Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem, the Messiah will come. It's that, it's that specific of a prophecy. It's, it, it's an amazing prophecy in, in the Old Testament. The very day when the Lord was to come was foretold. But Jesus goes one step further than that. He condemns their unbelief. He says the temple system and the apostate leadership of Jer- Jerusalem, he says the, the stones that, that are torn down will be a testimony of your judgment until I return again. I think that's really what Jesus is saying. Mark doesn't record this, but Luke does. Again, the Mount of Olives is higher than the temple. And so it's, Luke says when Jesus gets about halfway down, he's eye level with the temple, he can see the, the temple. With all of this fanfare and praise around him, people are singing and praising. Jesus bursts into tears. He weeps over the city. At the point he could see the city within its walls and its beautiful temple and its houses, he... He burst into tears, knowing what is in store for them. This is what Jesus says when, when he weeps. Luke nineteen forty three. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will barricade you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The reference to the stones crying out earlier is not a reference to the stone of the tomb crying out, but Habakkuk 2.10. It's a specific condemnation of judgment. God speaks to the Chaldeans. Look at it again. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many people's sin against your soul, the stone will cry out from the, from the wall, and the beams from the timber will answer it. There's this, like this conversation, which stones and timbers don't talk, so it's representing something. It's a conversation between the walls and the, and the timbers, and they're saying something about this, the, the, this, this, this sin that built this house. The walls of the Chaldeans were built with stone and timbers taken by robbery and bloodshed, this passage says. And God says they're crying out as a witness. And Jesus is saying, as the rightful king, says this to the Pharisees, if the pilgrims' praise fall, fall, fall silence, then the stone of the temple and the system the apostate Jews have built will, will crowd in judgment against them. You might think of it like St. Peter's Basilica in Rome to, today, the, where the Pope lives. It's a beautiful cathedral, but it was funded through exploitation, through the sale of indulgences where people were raped and pillaged and, and preached, told a false gospel. 
You see a beautiful building in Rome, but God sees the wickedness that built it. Or maybe the Crystal Cathedral that was years ago when Robert Schuller was still alive. You see gold and precious stone, and the Lord sees wood, hay, and, and stubble. Jesus says, when he sees Jerusalem, you see a beautiful temple and religious system that you built, but God sees your unbelief and your wickedness that, that runs it. What does Jesus say when he cleanses the temple, we call it? My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a what? Den of thieves. This is a profound judgment. It's like saying, you don't want these to stop speaking the truth about who I am, Hosanna, because if they do, the only testimony that will be given is evidence that you have built a religion without me and you have forsaken your God. And if you go to Israel today, those stones are still there giving testimony of the rejection of the Messiah. Literally, there is a pile of stones where the Romans have pushed off, the pushed off during the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and they're in a pile right below on the, on the street where Robinson's Arch is. And they take every tourist through there. Look here, here's the evidence that there was a Jewish temple here. They want you to know that there was a Jewish temple because there are certain people in the world that say the Jews never controlled Jerusalem. And it's a testimony of their judgment. That's exactly what happened, isn't it? The praise stopped and the stones became a witness against them. The temple was destroyed. And since then, there have been no sacrifices in Jerusalem since 70 AD. And the identity of the of the Messiah has been veiled to their eyes. And that judgment is still active today. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. And the nation is silent about it. And that's to their condemnation. But one day, hopefully very soon, that same nation will look upon the one whom they pierced, and they'll be like Thomas in that day. And they'll... Say, unless I see, I won't believe, and Jesus will show himself, and they'll say, my Lord and my God, and their mouths will be loosed. That's for the Jews. For us, church, our mouths are not silent about who Jesus is or that he's the king. Our eyes are not blind. And where does this same God dwell today? He departed the temple a long time ago. He's surely not there in a physical building today. Where does God dwell today? Not amongst the stones in Jerusalem, but in His church. And in particular, in your heart. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? You all are a temple of God? This is talking about the church. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. The temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. The temple is gone. There's a better one. The temple now is the Spirit of God inhabits His people, where they gather together in a local church, and the Spirit of God lives in, in you. The kingdom, the earthly kingdom is coming. There'll be a universal kingdom where Jesus will sit physically on the throne and will rule the world. But do you know that same king now rules today, but he rules in your heart, doesn't he? Why? Because you've recognized who he is, and you have laid your, your cloaks down before him, 
proverbially, you've submitted to him. You say, you're God, I'm not, I bow before you. And you've believed who he is. You believe what he's done, what he's accomplished, that he died for your sins. The only way that your sins can be forgiven. He was buried and he rose from the dead. And he offers himself freely to anyone who will repent and believe today. Do you know him? Because he's coming again. And when Jesus comes again, it won't be for the work of the cross. It'll be judgment then. All salvation has been placed in the hands of the Son, and because of that, all judgment is placed in the hands of the Son. And the next day, the next time he comes, though, it'll be a day to judge. Then he has the right to judge you. Today, he has the right to forgive your sins. Think about that. There is someone who can wash your conscience clean, and that someone is God himself, who's offered in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you this morning as, as believers. assume most people here are. And we gather before this week. We're reminded of what our Lord did. We believe. We've already believed. And we look forward to celebrating. We look forward to remembering, rejoicing, repenting, confessing, and celebrating. Your word also tells us, Lord, that every time we gather, there are also those who have never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. They've, they've never believed. And so I pray for them today as well. I pray that they would submit to Jesus. Not as some get-out-of-hell-free card, although he'll get them out of hell, but as Lord, Master. And if they'll do that, then you'll show them. You'll forgive their sins and you'll show them how to overcome the power that's, that's so enslaved them for however long it's been. The first step is to turn to you and believe. I ask this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.